John and chapter 17. John and chapter 17. I begin reading from verse 20 and we go right to the end of this chapter. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Well, brethren, we have been making our way through this uh, upper room discourse, and as you can see, we are getting pretty close to the end of uh, this entire section of the Bible, including this entire uh, prayer that we call the High Priestly Prayer of our Lord. And uh, the High Priestly Prayer, as we've seen, divides itself nicely into three sections. First of all, there is where Jesus was praying for himself, verse 1 to verse 5 and then where he prays for the apostles whom is about to live on earth, verse 6 down to verse 19. And then finally, he prays for all of us who are individuals that have been elected in eternity, brought to salvation in Christ, and on our way to glory. And that is from verse 20 down to verse 26. And now we are in that last section, verse 20 down to verse 26, where Jesus is praying for us who are in the world today. And what we have noticed, which might come as a surprise to us, is the way in which Jesus is primarily praying. His number one prayer is for our unity, our being one. That might come as a surprise because often we don't think about Christian unity that highly. Uh, we think in terms of Christian holiness very highly, that we might end up getting to heaven. But Christian unity 
is one that we easily dispense with. After all, you can see we are in different uh, denominations, different churches, and even in the church, you have individual enemies. If you're, uh, the person don't like sits on this side, you quickly sit on the other side. Hey, what's the problem? And you continue with life. Often, that is the way we get by. So it comes as a complete shock that Jesus is saying that I am praying for them and my prayer is that they may all be one. I have emphasized from the beginning that this is not organizational unity. Okay, so this is not about all the Reformed Baptist churches in Zambia and Africa and the world coming together in one body with, with the headquarters, uh, whether it's in Geneva or Lusaka or wherever it might be, uh, and so forth. That's not primarily what is being spoken about here. Yes, there will be some organizational unit that comes out of this reality, but it is not primarily about organizational unity. It is about spiritual unity, or sometimes you can refer to it as organic unity. And God himself talks about it here uh, through his son when he speaks in terms of um, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There is a union that is being spoken about there that goes beyond organizations and meetings and, min and administration and so on. Uh, there, there is a, a unity that is spiritual, a unity that is organic, a unity, as we said, uh, that is not mechanical, but one that is fused one into the other. And that's what, again, we will be looking at today as we come to verse 22 and verse 23. The thing that, again, I, I want us to, to notice here is that we, we are in very deep waters. What we are dealing with here is, is something we are not used to. We are used to read your Bible, pray every day. We are used to resist temptation um, and things like that. We are used to share the gospel with other people and so forth. We are used to what we are supposed to be doing with one another. In other words, if we can imagine a tree, we are used to the main trunk and the branches. That's what we live with. We are not used to what is underneath there, where the roots are sucking in the life-giving um, nutrients. We, we don't peep there. It's not the kind of information we process every day. And yet that's what is here, as Jesus is praying to the Father. He is talking to him about things which God sees. Because God, like a scientist, is able to dig in there and do what happens in there in order to educate us lesser mortals about why trees, some of them are green and others are brown, even during the dry season and so on. It, it's the information which is down there. 
And in the same way, we, we simply observe that as, as Christians, we, we love one another and we are drawn towards each other. But what we do not have daily in our eyesight is what is at the bottom, what is causing this. And so we, Jesus prays about Christian unity. And now in today's sermon, I'm talking about how this true Christian unity is secured. How this true Christian unity is secured. And it is facts that are under the surface. They are still facts, and they are happening, and they are under the surface. So, first of all, it is primarily because of what I'm calling here a given glory. A given glory. Look with me very quickly at verse 22. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Already, I'm not a prophet, but I know you must be sitting there thinking, how? First of all, what is this glory that we have been given? As far as I know, I'm as earthly as anything can be. What glory do I have? But secondly, how does this glory that Jesus is speaking about secure my unity with my, my fellow brothers and sisters. How? Let's try and dig into this a little bit. Remember, it's not everyday speech. And therefore, if you find yourself having to come up for air, so to speak, that's all right. It is not what we normally swim in. First of all, at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus prayed to be given glory. And obviously, it is a glory that he had before the world began. And it is also a glory that he will induce his own enter into in answer to his prayers. Let's read the first part of John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. And then verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So, to begin with, he is praying to be glorified. And this glorification is one that he will have. Glorify me in your own presence. In other words, it is a glory that is going to gain as he arrives in heaven and he is glorified. He says it even towards the end of this prayer. Um, where is that now? 
verse 23 downwards, or actually verse 24 downwards, he says the same thing. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there seems to be on one hand a glory that he is asking for which by implication he doesn't have a glory which he will get when he gets to heaven but on the other he seems to also be speaking about a glory that he has received that they might see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world and it is that glory that he speaks about in verse 22 the glory that you have given me i have given to them what is this glory that seems to be different from the glory he's asking for that he's going to get when he gets glorified what is this glory i want to suggest to you that it is the, the union that takes place between his human nature and his divine nature. It is the participation of his human nature into that which is divine. That is the glory that he currently has. And it is not the glory he is going to enjoy when he gets there. It will be enhanced because his own human nature, which has participated now on earth with his divine being, is that which now is going to enjoy that high estate that Jesus already had before time began okay back to our text rather back to the first verse father the hour has come glorify your son that your son may glorify you and then again verse 5 and now father glorify me with your own presence rather in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So that's more than simply divine existence. Or the phrase I'm using here is divine life. It's more than that. It is now also the divine life in the divine station. That's where he was before. He was humbled as he took on human nature, but that human nature experienced the divine. So in that sense, Jesus, speaking from his position in terms of humanity, is saying there has been this glorification, this union, so that divine life and human life has consequently been united in me. And then he says, I am longing for the final estate where 
my human nature is going to experience divine life in that divine station. I am longing for that. I want to suggest to you that that's really what he is speaking about. And the proof I am going to give you in a moment. So at this stage, trust me, that this glory is about God's life flowing through us. The life of God in the soul of man. Many years ago, we used to sing, we would meet in our student interdenominational fellowships. And uh, at the beginning of the meeting, the song leader would say to us, let's now go around and greet one another. And as we we're going around greeting one another, we used to sing, uh, I won't attempt to sing it, otherwise you, you forget my entire sermon today. But the words were, I love you with the love of the Lord. I love you with the love of the Lord. And then he said, for I see in you the glory of the Lord. And I love you with the love of the Lord. We used to sing it consistently week after week and so on as we're now greeting one another. I love you with the love. Oops, I almost sang it. <laughs> okay. The point is this glory that there is something about you that is different from the non-Christians. There is something about you. We'll come into the details about it in a minute. And that's, that, that separates you from everybody else. And inevitably, I find myself having a genuine love for you. That you belong to me and I belong to you. Now, the way in which this is brought out is in the next phrase, verse 23. What I want you to notice is that this is not like something next or, or something after what I just spoken about. No, no. This is literally John writing in his usual cyclic way. This is um, a parallel. This is the same thing from two different sides. So, listen to this. I begin with verse 22 again. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Okay? That they may be one, even as we are one. And notice it doesn't say, and, well, if your version says it, feel free to cancel it. It simply says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. So that phrase, I in them and you in me is basically a parallel of the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. In other words, you remember last um, time I was here, we were dealing with verse 21. And, and we spent a bit of time unraveling that statement which says, 
verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then he says that they also may be in us. You remember, we spent quite a bit of time opening that up. And the thing I was saying there was that this is about the union that is there between the Father and the Son. This is about the union that is there between God and us. And it is this union that gives birth to the communion, to the fellowship, to, to the, the koinonia, to, to the love relationship that is there between us and God. So, we are dealing with parallels here. Literally, three parallels. The first one was when he said, just as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And what was that supposed to achieve? Beginning of verse 21, that they may all be one. So that's coming out of you being in me, me being in you, them being in us. And then he says in verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I have given them that they may also be one. And then he says, I in them and you in me. In other words, this, the, the life of God in the soul of man. Therein lies what makes us stand out from the rest of the human race. Now let's face it. We don't see it on ourselves, don't we? Even the world doesn't see it. There's no halo on top of our heads as we are going around doing things. This is reality which is true underneath there. We see its fruit. I'll come to that in a moment. We see its fruit. But it's a spiritual reality. It, being a Christian is not simply making some decision that I want to be a Muslim, I want to be a Hindu, instead I'm going to be a Christian. And therefore, I should be praying every day and reading my Bible every day and, hey presto, I find myself in heaven. Being a Christian is much more than that. It is the powers of the coming age invading your soul. It is the life of God flowing through you. Remember the way Jesus put it in John 15 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And the reason why you bear fruit is because my life is flowing through you the way in which the sap flowing through the main trunk goes into the branches and the branches consequently begin to bear fruit. Chop it off from the main trunk and that's it. It dries up. It cannot bear fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. It's my life flowing through you that makes you what you are. The life of God flowing through us. In um, 1 Peter 
chapter 3, if we can just quickly turn there. It's not in my notes, uh, but uh, it's there in the Bible. So let's quickly turn there. First Peter chapter 3. Peter is talking to, <clears throat> to the disciples about why they are suffering. And uh, he, he says to them that they mustn't be surprised about their suffering. The, <clears throat> one of the reasons why is because there's a spiritual reality that you, you are not conscious of, but the devil is conscious of it. And because the devil is conscious of it, he makes sure you pay for it. Sorry, chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Here it is. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There is a spiritual reality that is upon you that the world knows nothing of. And yet, that's what causes the evil one to rise and want to bring harm to you. We already saw that this is true between the father and the son. We need to emphasize that this common life is also true between God and us. It is true. We are in union with God. We are not God but we have been brought into union with him so that his life flows through us. And in that sense, therefore, we can safely say that we have something of that glory, the glory that belongs to God alone is a glory that is resting upon us. There is something of the life of God that is actually already true of us. Now, very quickly, the way in which it is seen is, is not primarily through organizational unity. But first of all, it is seen in actual communion. In actual communion. Now, let, let's forget about one another first. Let's Let's stick to God alone. And let's face it. All of you will testify to this. That before you became a Christian, you used to say prayers. You know what I mean? Eh? Before eating, you know, uh, you, you'd say your quick prayer, whatever prayer you were taught, and your five fingers entered into your shima. But you did not know what it meant to pray. You didn't pray. But when you became a Christian, that changed. Somehow, you, you actually were having communion with God. You, you, you now speak to God. And not only when you say to people, let's pray, but even when you're just going about life, you, you actually 
are talking to, to God. People think you're just sitting there alone, meditating, but actually you are in communion with God. You are sitting there perhaps confessing your sins to the Lord. Ouch, Lord, forgive me for thinking this thought or for saying what I said there or for this attitude and so on. And sometimes you're actually speaking to God in joy because of the kind of things he's done for you. Lord, I'm really grateful for the life that you've given me. I'm, I, I just cannot express enough gratitude for the times in which I live, the opportunities you've given me, etc., etc. You, you know, you, you sort of, you're talking to God. You are in communion with him. You are thanking him for sins forgiven, the, the peace that you enjoy, and, and so on, the joy that is yours. You are having fellowship with him communion with him. But secondly, again, let's forget about one another for now. We are dealing with the, the vertical relationship here. This also shows itself in, in, in love for the Lord. You love the Lord. Hmm? I hope you do. You love the Lord. Genuinely. Previously, you you, you, you issue about Christianity was, will I go to hell? Uh, you know, I want to avoid going to hell. So to avoid going to hell, I better become a Christian kind of thing. But that's not the issue now. Hell or no hell, this has been the most wonderful of all relationships. He loves you, but you actually love him. You, you want to live for him. You, you want to, to worship him. You want to serve him. You want to love him back. It's real. You, you are willing to sacrifice for him. It's real. Why? His life is flowing through you. There's a very real relationship that you have with the Lord. Let me add one more thing. And it is this. That you have a common purpose with God. A common purpose. You're not going one way while God is going the opposite way. You're not busy just trying to you know, feast and enjoy yourself and so on and, and make a great name for yourself and on and on and on while God is busy trying to, to bring in the lost and grow his church and, and enhance the spiritual lives of God's people and, and so on. No, no, no. Whatever it is that you are involved in, and I'm not talking about you being pastors, whatever it is, somehow you want it to serve this great purpose of God. That's what you want. And so you are in tune with God. You are in line with him. You are, you are moving in the same direction. Well, what I've done there is I've not told you what you should be doing. I've simply said something that is a matter of fact. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not true about me, well, you've just found yourself out that you don't have this I in them and them in us experience. You don't. You, you're just religious. You're not converted. But if you're converted, you know what I'm talking about. This fellowship, this love, and this 
purpose that is in line with the purpose of God across history. Now, let me suggest to you that that which is true of you is true of her and him and her and him and so on around. So you can already begin to see why that brings you together. That brings you together. So it makes your fellowship very real. When you are with believers, the non-Christians are very often terribly bored about what you're talking about. <laughs> because, you know, the things of God are foolishness to them. Completely foolish. So why are these people always talking about God, Jesus Christ, the church, sin, holiness, salvation, and so on, heaven, hell? Why, why are you those things? Why be so carried away with the subject of missions and so on? Why? Why are they always talking about, you know, holiness in heart, trying to be the best that they could possibly be in their hearts, in their minds, in their actions for God and so on. This God is just an X in an equation. People just didn't know how to explain reality. That's why they put in that X and called it God. That's what they think. But for you, when you're with brothers and sisters, and it's not even church, it's not even Bible study, you're just having a cup of coffee or tea at home with fitumbua. But you find that that's where your communion is, your fellowship is, just flowing. Similarly, with love, I've already talked about it. I love you with the love of the Lord. I can see in you the glory of the Lord. You just sense that you belong. You sense these are my brothers, these are my sisters. You sense it. That this is my spiritual family. I don't know how it is these days with weddings, but when we were getting married, we used to have a number of cards that we would put together, and they would be according to the number of chairs in the reception. And one of the areas we always got into trouble with, with our parents, was, for instance, if you had 100 cards, then 50 went to the girl, 50 to you as a guy. Then those 50 that come to you, you now say, uh, okay, relatives, 20. Church, 30. Ah! <laughs> they would be upset. Church, church, what's church? Why are you, you know? To, to the people of the world, why do you even want to, look, we, we've got uncle so-and-so and auntie so-and-so and grandparents, you know, and all these grand-uncles and uh, so many cousins who really matter. Fifty is not even enough. Now you want to take the majority to, to your church people, your church people. But it didn't occur to you that those are outsiders. Somehow to you, these people mean more to you than those uncles and aunties that are being named. Who, yeah, you may have seen them 
when you were still in kindergarten, but you haven't seen them since. But God's people, you can't imagine having a wedding without these people there celebrating with you. You just can't. And so those battles will be real running battles for quite some time. And that's why they just don't understand why your closest friends are Christians. They think perhaps it's just because you want them to just keep an eye on you, but it's not true. You love them, they love you. And when they've got situations in their lives, they are sick, they don't have school fees, they've got a funeral, you, you want to be there for them. You genuinely love them. Why? It's this common life that Jesus is calling here, this glory that was given to his humanity that enabled his human nature to share in the divine nature. That same has been given to us as individuals and we see it in each other. And that gives us that commonality. It's not simply that we belong to the same church directory. No. It's more than that. It's this common life. May I quickly add to it the sense of purpose. That, that's what keeps us united. That's what keeps us going. We've got a common purpose. And again, the people of the world think, you guys are crazy to be taking your tithes and giving to the church and taking your offering, a free will offering given to the church and then you're even adding pledging and you're giving to the church. You're throwing away money, you know, hard-earned money. You're throwing it away. You're crazy. Why, why, why even bother? to start wanting to start a church or churches in Rwanda. Can you believe Rwanda? So far out, Rwanda. Why? Use your money. Enjoy it now. But here you are. You've got a common purpose. And it's God's purpose. And together you are working together. You are working. The world can't understand that. That all of you should be so dull and foolish, all of you. And yet, you seem to be so full of joy and fulfillment and throwing all your weight in the same direction. They, they can't understand. The truth is, it is this unity. It is this unity. As I said, it's not primarily organizational, although it often leads that way. You put nuts and bolts together. You say, okay, let's meet for a cup of tea at such a place and so on. That's the lowest level of administration. But the point nonetheless is that it finds itself through that. Although it's not primarily that. It's primarily organic. It's spiritual. 
it is what makes up our lives. Now, very quickly, Jesus repeats what he has already said in verse 21. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world can see that there is something unique. That was verse 21, end of verse 21. He repeats it, end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me, and then adds this, and loved them even as you loved me. Now, it's that last part that just blows our minds completely. To imagine that God loves us the way he loves his son. You sort of need to read it again. Maybe the, the ESV did not translate it correctly. But when you go to all the other versions, that's exactly what you find. And have loved me even as you, you rather you've loved them even as you loved me. It's repeated in the very last statement of this prayer. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. How? Well, that's, that's what this is all about. What Jesus did in saving us from sin was to join us to himself. We are one with Christ. Remember, I keep saying it, union, union, union. We are one with Christ. What took place when his human nature was added to his divine nature is that these two make up one person, one person. And there's no way that God the Father is just going to love the divine part of this one person and then despise the other part. No, no, no. It has been added to something of his glory. The two natures are now one. It's the same between Christ and us. We have been immersed into Christ. He is in us. We are one with Christ. Therefore, the love that the Father has had upon the Son for all eternity, that love has now been put on us. On us. Even while we are still here below, he's put on us. And that's the thing that if the world doesn't see now, the world will definitely see in eternity. But what the world is already seeing now is that real Christianity is different from everything else. It's different. 
it's there is a testimony when the christian church is living out what it really is that life underneath there when that life is permeating and touching the branches the world cannot help but see that these people are really different this jesus who has saved them must be real look so how is true christian unity attained or secured it's not by us trying to do things it's been secured by god himself in his method of salvation secured and that's why in the book of ephesians chapter 3 we're not being told rather beginning of chapter 4 we're not being told to attain unity we're simply being told to maintain it to maintain it the unity of the spirit it's already achieved it's already secured our task is to maintain it may god help us to show forth something of that reality the glory of God that has been shared with us us in him and he in us may the world see the reality of our Savior and may we ourselves even now be convinced that God loves me the way he loves his own son amen